Hello and welcome to Time in the Market, an Invesco podcast series for UK professional investors. I'm Ben Gutteridge, your host, a failed TV celebrity desperate for a bit of attention, but also an investment director from within Invesco's multi-asset strategies division. In this series, we'll be interviewing some of the highest profile names from in and around the financial industry and from both within and without Invesco. But before the action begins, we want to stress this interview should not be considered as investment advice and remind you that any capital invested is always capital at risk. Finally, we would encourage you to listen to some further important information immediately following the interview. Thank you and on with the show. Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to our final Time in the Market podcast for 2023. And what a way to finish as we welcome Invesco's supremo chief market strategist and not just a pretender like myself, uh, none other than Christina Hooper. Christina, thanks so much for sparing the time. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I am great. Looking forward to the holidays for sure. Well, I bet you are. It's been a very busy year for all of us, especially you. And look, we are thrilled to get uh, time with you. And as our listeners would appreciate, what we're going to try and do is get a, a better steer on what your views are for the year ahead. But before we get going, just a quick thank you, Christina, for your regular updates this year. Plenty of optimism in those notes, I, I thought, which is a bit out of consensus, but also hopefully sort of emotionally and strategically rewarding uh, for clients. But also, before the main interview begins, uh, we do open with our regular prefer or defer round. It's sort of 10 closed questions where you get to get to tell us your preferred option, or if it's really too difficult, you can just defer. It gives us a chance to know you a little better as a person, but also as, a, as an investor. Are you, uh, are you game for this, Christina? I am ready to go, although I have to give you a caveat that I have no game show experience, so I could falter here. <laughs> okay, the well, it's not, high. A, it's, it's not a requirement, Christina, but uh, <laughs> we, we, we'll see. Okay, right, let's, uh, let's begin. Uh, equities or bonds? Equities, but bonds would be a close second. Developed markets or emerging markets? Emerging markets. Uh, US or Europe? Europe. A large cap or small cap? Small cap. Value or growth? Value. Treasuries or high yield? Investment grade. Lionel Messi or LeBron James? LeBron James. Christmas or Thanksgiving? Christmas. Sing along or quiz? Sing along. Uh, and then an easy one to finish, uh, sons or daughters? Both. <laughs> of course. Of course, I I just feel like, you know, as a father, the answers would always be like daughters, uh, tongue in cheek, of course, but uh, <laughs> quite... <laughs> Quite rightly, nice, nice, nicely uh, politically uh, uh, managed there, Christina. Thanks very much for those those answers. I think that gives us something of a platform to to talk about the main conversation, which we will flip to now. And it's, it, as I said, lovely to talk to you, and it's great that we, we can be sort of upbeat. In fact, the markets are in good spirits at the moment as well. So I'm loath to kick off with sort of a bearish note, Christina. But um, I think like the markets sort of getting closer to the view, if not there, that we're in for a soft landing next year, that a recession would be avoided. I mean, is that something you're aligned with, Christina, or do you think recessionary risks are quite prominent for, for next year? So I don't think we'll see a recession, but I do think it's too Pollyanna-ish to assume we're going to see a soft landing. Because to me, a soft landing suggests that there is no damage. And I think when you have the kind of aggressive, synchronized tightening cycles we've seen in Western developed economies, there is going to be some damage. So I like to refer to my expectations for the first half of 24 as a bumpy landing. We're not going to see some kind of broad 
broad-based significant recession, but I don't think that economies will get away unscathed, that there is going to be damage. For example, in the U.S., we've seen a significant pickup in Chapter 11 bankruptcies. We're seeing some companies having real difficulty getting financing. So there will be some damage. So to me, that's the recipe for what I would call a bumpy landing. Okay, well, I appreciate the uh, the nuances and the subtleties to that. And then again, sort of reflecting on more recent news that does seem to have upended a lot of 2024 market outlooks has been this uh, sort of pivot from central banks and largely, well, certainly the Federal Reserve, and largely suggests or would imply that the inflation battle has now been won. And it's that that's given the flexibility that, for the Fed to make this pivot next year. I mean, are you at ease again with that assumption or, or are you nervous that uh, inflationary pressures might reignite? I'm at ease with the view that inflation has been tamed. Certainly, we haven't gotten to the 2% target yet, but we are very much on the way there. Now, having said that, disinflation is an imperfect process, and that means that there will be data points that do not support the view that uh, disinflation is well underway and we are getting close to that 2% target. But when we step back and look at that bigger picture, that clearly is the case case. So we could get some hot numbers that could cause uh, you know, some consternation for markets. But I do believe that we are well on our way and we will get very close to, if not to, that 2% inflation target. And is that sort of a broad-based assessment of inflation that encourages you? Or there are some certain elements that you feel there's more conviction that disinflation can, can persist? Well, you know, from my perspective, there are just a variety of different signs that inflation is moving in the right direction. Obviously, it started with goods inflation. Um, That was the area that was impacted by the pandemic the most. We saw people at home so they could only really spend on goods as opposed to services, and that's where they put their money. Um, They had money to spend because of the very significant infusion of, of fiscal stimulus. And then, of course, we had the supply chain disruptions, which limited the number of of goods available. And so it was a perfect storm. We've worked through those kinks. Once economies reopened, consumers shifted to spending on services. So demand went down. Supply improved as supply chains uh, worked out their issues. And in fact, if we look at the New York Fed's global supply chain pressure index, um, we're back to pre-pandemic. Uh, So that has happened for goods inflation. Um, We're starting to see significant improvement in services inflation. Um, We're starting to see significant improvement in housing. So we're headed in the right direction. It could take time for some components of inflation to get there. But I think the story is a very good one. Okay, great stuff, uh, Christina. So that leads us on to the conversation about monetary policy. And, and I wonder whether you get acutely hung up on like the date at which the Federal Reserve may begin its cuts. Not that it's inappropriate to do so. I didn't mean to ask the question in sort of an antagonistic way. But uh, what, is your, what is your anticipation for monetary policy through next year? And as I said, what, what is the importance of the dates and the, and the scale of moves? Well, Ben, the rule of thumb in the U.S. is about eight and a half months. That's historically for recent rate hike cycles. That's been the time lag between the last rate hike 
and the first cut. And so if the last rate hike was in July, as I think um, it was, then I, I, I think it makes sense to see a rate cut in the first quarter of 24. So I'm not hung up on specifics, but I, I do think it's very likely that we see that first rate cut come in the second quarter of 24. Okay. There's so much more background we could talk about, about growth and inflation and policy, but, uh, you know, keen to get to it. Based on that background, that setup, then what, what are you thinking about equities or global equities for next year? Do you think they can deliver a, a positive result and, and one that exceeds cash? I do. Um, what we've seen historically, you know, if we look at the S&P 500, performance starts to improve after rate hike cycles have ended. Uh, so we actually don't need cuts as a trigger for uh, solid performance from equities, or at least that historically has been the case. And so I'm uh, very positive on equities as we head into 2024. Now, that's easy to say this week, but we've been positive on this uh, for some time before we got that uh, nod from Jay Powell last week, uh, that essentially public pivot for the Fed. Now, having said all that, I think that one of the catalysts for equities is going to be an expectation of a reacceleration in the back half of the year. You know, typically stocks discount what's happening in the economy six to nine months out. So I think what we're going to see is a stock market that is already, but will continue to look through a first half slowdown and anticipate a second half reacceleration. And so in that environment, I would anticipate uh, the smaller caps, the cyclicals, and the non-US to perform better. Um, that's typically what we see as part of the recovery trade. Okay, well, that's, uh, that's great to get your view on equities and which part of the equity markets might perform. A part of the market you, you didn't mention with great confidence there sort of leads me on to our next question. And, and I would say it's actually quite an unfair question. It's a difficult one to call, but that of the, the mag Magnificent Seven. I, th I say difficult because, you know, I know you're uh, more of a macro investor, and this is a little more stock specific. But of course, they're so dominant, aren't they? And I don't know how much time you have to try and spend understanding them. But anyway, you know, what is your thoughts on whether the Magnificent Seven continue to lead the markets? So I think that what we're going to see, and we've already gotten a, a glimpse of this, is a broadening of markets. It's it was great to have the Magnificent Seven do a lot of the heavy lifting in uh, 23, especially earlier in the year. But I do believe we're going to see a broadening. And it makes sense. If we see cyclicals start to perform better, if we see smaller caps start to perform better, that means a far broader participation. Now, does that mean that the Magnificent Seven is over? I don't think so. In fact, for tech names, uh, I think there's there's a real benefit coming from rates falling. We know that uh, technology is a long-duration asset class. We know it's very sensitive to rates, uh, both when they go up and when they go down. So there's, there's a positive technology in general. Uh, and I don't think Magnificent Seven is going to have a, a bad year. But I, I think the big story, the, the headline for the year is likely to be about the broadening of the market. Okay, well, in danger of asking you to repeat a previous answer here, but just, just for clarity purposes and maybe any context you want to offer, but what are the markets 
and the sectors uh, that uh, you're most excited about for 2024? Sure. So, uh, you know, I first should give the the caveat that I think what we're going to see is stronger performance for equities in the first half of 24 as they discount that reacceleration in the back half of the year. But as we actually head into the back half of the year, I think we're going to see some moderation in equity performance. Now, so for the first half of the year, that leads me to favor smaller caps, uh, cyclicals, emerging markets, equities. Those are areas that I think are very likely to perform well when the market is discounting an economic recovery in the back half of the year. However, as we move through the year, I think we're going to see a a moderation in performance. And I think we're going to see perhaps a dimming or a focus on a dimming of risk appetite. I mean, I think we'll still have a significant risk appetite, but it may be more qualified and selective. And, uh, And that's an environment where I think we could see some defensive areas of the market perform well. Now, interestingly, technology is the one sector that I think could perform well all year long, but for different reasons. In the first half of the year, I think it could be a beneficiary simply of of rates coming down. In the back half of the year, I think it could be a beneficiary of a flight to quality on the part of investors, a focus on uh, more defensive areas on secular growth. Beyond that, though, um, for the first half of the year, I would say the cyclicals, the the consumer discretionary, but, but certainly want to be selective there, materials, industrials, those are areas that are like to perform well. I have a very strong conviction on emerging markets equities because I do believe the dollar is going to weaken significantly and that is going to be a tailwind. Okay, well, uh, a complete roadmap for the year ahead there, Christina. How easy it is for the rest of us uh, to follow from here on in. But uh, on, on that subject of emerging markets, don't want to get too cute cut and slicing the numbers of late, but there has clearly been a pickup in risk appetite of late and uh, many of the markets have started to sort of pull their weight, if you like. Think about like small caps, as you've mentioned, are really enjoying the sort of turnaround in sentiment of late. But it it does seem to be that emerging markets sort of aren't pulling their weight in this sort of uh, risk on or improving sort of sentiment environment. Uh, And maybe with good reason, given all the concerns we have and and the the sort of clouds hanging over China. You talk about a weaker dollar. Uh, I mean, is that enough to get this emerging market uh, trade working again? It's part of the picture, but certainly not enough on its own. I think what's important to focus on for emerging markets is that many of them have been more proactive in terms of fighting inflation. Many are well positioned and they've benefited from some of the supply chain changes that have occurred over the last few years duplications and shifting of supply chain. So I'm speaking specifically about Asia EM in particular, but certainly other other countries have benefited as well and will continue to benefit from the alterations being made in supply chains. They're likely to benefit from greater investment um, moving forward. And so I think there's a lot of potential there. 
also helping, even though valuations are rarely predictive in the short term, um, what we have is a, a very attractive valuation environment. Um, when we look at, at emerging markets um, equities, valuations are lower than average and at the lower end of the historical range. And that should also provide uh, some benefit, some underpinning for the space this year. Okay, well, thanks, uh, Christina. That sort of completes the interrogation on equities, which was uh, also easy for you. Um, Just round out with a few other uh, asset classes. Uh, Any comments you want to make about the bond market? Do you have a preferred segment? Actually, I know in the uh, prefer or defer, you talked about investment grade, but you may want to elaborate on that if you can. Sure. So investment grade to us really is a sweet spot. You know, valuations are attractive. We think uh, any Rate stabilization leads to a greater allocation to investment grade. You know, this is going to be an environment which uh, we don't anticipate to be a soft landing. It's going to be a bumpy landing. And I think a bumpy landing is is a very attractive environment for investment grade uh, because it's quality. And uh, and I think that um, that's going to be a very attractive asset class for investors and um, with good reason. Yields are still attractive. And I, I think we're going to see, in my opinion, investment grade credit and emerging markets debt both perform well in 2024. Okay, great. And then you've already sort of mentioned you believe the dollar's sort of set for a period of weakness. And I guess that will tie into your suggestion that the Fed might move a little earlier than uh, than the consensus is expecting. Uh, but is there more to it? What, what, what are you thinking about dollar weakness? And what do you think might uh, appreciate the most against it? Well, the dollar's expensive. That adds to the picture. But um, I think that, that the key driver for the dollar is going to be expectations around Fed policy. And I think the Fed is going to be an early mover and could very well be a more aggressive mover than other major central banks. So for all those reasons, I think we're going to see the U.S. dollar weaken this year, weaken significantly. Um, and the- I was just sort of wondering what currencies you might uh, feel would be the winners in that uh, out- outcome. The most obvious play is JPY. The Japanese yen is is uh, very cheap. And also, um, there is that potential. We haven't seen it yet with the Bank of Japan, but there is the potential for marginal tightening. I don't think we need to see it to see JPY strengthen. Um, we saw some strengthening last week with uh, the Fed meeting, but that certainly would be a nice sweetener. And I think we will get it at some point in 2024. Okay. And uh, closing out, I'm afraid, on the subject of uh, gold and catalyzed by its uh, price moves uh, of late, which seems to sort of generate quite a bit of interest, certainly at uh, a retail client uh, level. Just wondering whether it looks like uh, an opportunity still from uh, from this moment or whether it's regardless, whether it remains like a good diversifier within portfolios. (laughs) Those are not mutually exclusive. I think it can be a good diversifier, but it is looking rich. So, you know, it's really interesting. I'm I'm fascinated, actually, by the behavior of gold in recent years, although I guess I shouldn't be. It has become the go-to safe haven asset class. You know, if we looked 10 years ago, um, treasuries were perceived to be, I I think, an even greater go-to safe haven asset class. But that has changed over time. 
And uh, and now gold, uh, especially with geopolitical risks, has become quite popular. And I think we're we're likely to see a continuation of that in the foreseeable future. Certainly, we've seen a lot of central bank buying of gold. Um, there are just a lot of, of uh, different catalysts for gold in recent years, including concerns about um, the U.S. essentially financially weaponizing the dollar. And so gold has, has benefited from that as well. So I, I would anticipate it to be something of a good diversifier, but just giving the caveat that it is not fantastic at everything if we look historically. So as an inflation hedge, it has a spotty track record. And even as um, a geopolitical risk hedge, it has something of a spotty track record. Again, these asset classes can evolve and a lot of, of um, their future performance is dictated by investor perceptions and uh, where investors want to go in the events of crisis. But I would just say that um, that it is not uh, the be-all and the end-all, but it certainly has the potential to be a diversifier and could be, along with other alternative asset classes, part of an alternative sleeve in a portfolio that should be able to provide um, some level of diversification. Okay, well, a really uh, balanced and thoughtful view there, Christina, and uh, chimes with the rest of the, uh, the the interview. I have to say there were some uh, a few thoughtful caveats in there, but generally I thought it was a real sort of clarity and, and purpose of your investment strategy. So I uh, really appreciate uh, your, your comments and your time. But as fascinating as it all is, uh, we must be thoughtful of our audience time. And indeed, actually, this host needs to get to Marks and Spencer's to buy his lucky wife some Christmas vouchers. So <laughs> you know, I've got to go as well. But uh, thank you, Christina. I, I wish you a great holiday season and uh, look forward to hearing uh, plenty more from you through 2024. And I guess I would suggest to our audience that they can follow you on LinkedIn. That's certainly how I keep uh, in touch with your uh, evolving views. Other than, of course, the phone. I know the phone's always open, Christina, but uh, certainly LinkedIn's been very useful for me to keep up to speed with your, your views. So I would suggest our audience does that. But to our audience, thank you for your support this year. I wish you all a very happy holiday season as well and look forward to speaking to you again in January with our next edition. But until then, from Christina and myself, uh, goodbye. listeners should be aware of the following investment risks. The value of investments and any income will fluctuate. This may partly be the result of exchange rate fluctuations and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Other important information for listeners. This podcast is intended for UK professional clients only and is not for consumer use. Views and opinions are based on current market conditions and are subject to change. This is marketing material and not financial advice. It is not intended as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular asset class security or strategy. Regulatory requirements that require impartiality of investment or investment strategy recommendations are therefore not applicable, nor are any prohibitions to trade before publication. Issued by Invesco Asset Management Limited, Perpetual Park, Perpetual Park Drive, Henley-on-Thames, Oxfordshire, RG91HH, UK. Authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority.